Hi, and welcome to Islington Baptist Church's podcast. This is where you'll find our weekly Bible talks from our church service every Sunday. We hope you enjoy and you might like to leave us a review or rating. Now, I wonder if you've ever met someone, maybe at work uh, or at a party, maybe even at church, when after a while you realize that the conversation always seems to be going back to them. You know, if you share something that happened to you, uh, well, you find out right away that they had something just like that happen to them as well. Uh, you know, that's, oh, that's just like the time when blah, blah, blah. You know, you share an opinion about something and then you get their opinion about it, whether you ask for it or not. There's no gap in the conversation too small for them to jump in and, and say what they want to say. Uh, you know, and, and it's pretty hard for you to find a gap to, to, to come back into it. Now, it's not a lot of fun, is it? You see, everything is not about us. And, and so it's really quite awkward when people act as if it is all about them, especially when they don't realize that they're doing it. Now, the truth is, of course, that in a sense, we all actually approach life like this. We've just learned that it's not socially acceptable to dominate conversations and act like everything is all about us. Even those of us who don't like attention uh, and who would never want to dominate a conversation, well, our natural instinct really is to approach life as if we are at the center of it all. It's almost impossible, isn't it, to avoid assuming that my ideas, my opinions, my feelings, my situation, what's happening to me, that that is more significant than what's happening to others. See, everyone else, it's like they're a supporting character uh, to the book that is really um, my life. Uh, whether or not I'm an over-the-top you know, party kind of person or a quiet, unassuming person who watches from the sidelines, I'm still the one at the center uh, and that's how I experience the world. It's natural, but it, it's not reality. We can't all actually be the center. Life is not actually all about us. And unfortunately, we, we can't help but bring this problem into our relationship with God and our experience of salvation. Each of us is tempted in some way to make it all about us. We, we slip into seeing salvation as primarily about me and my circumstances. What, what can God do for me? Uh, we, we put our confidence in ourselves or in people or processes that we can understand and that we can control. Church and ministry, well, it becomes a context for drawing attention to ourselves, for getting appreciation from others. We drift towards making salvation all about us. And that's why we need to hear again and again that salvation is about God, not about us. It's all about him, his redeeming power, his redeeming grace, his purposes for us. It's about knowing and worshipping him. We need God's word to keep correcting and reshaping our perspective, to see the world, to see life, to see salvation with God at the center. And we need to beware of that constant drift to make it all about ourselves. Now, of course, this is um, relevant for us all as individuals in, in lots of different ways, but it's also relevant to us as a church, isn't it? Like I uh, said in the kids' talk, we're celebrating 137 years today, all that God's done um, through this church, and the last thing we want to do is to reinforce the idea 
that it's all about us. See, I think churches that cling on to a sense of self-importance or, or that strive for significance, they're missing the point, aren't they? Today is an opportunity to, to remember that it's all about God, what he can and what he might do through us in our weakness for our good, according to his purposes, for his glory. And that's just what the story of God's redemption through Gideon does in Judges chapters 6 to 8. Uh, it's a story about God working in and through human weakness, about God redeeming people from idolatry to worship him. And it's a story that really exposes our instinct, I think, to make it all about ourselves, when it is, in fact, all about God. So we heard how the story starts in the Bible reading. Overall, it follows that usual pattern that we see in the book of Judges. Uh, the people of Israel do what is evil in God's sight. Uh, he hands them over to their enemies in judgment. They cry out to help, uh, cry out to God for help, and then he graciously raises up a judge to deliver them. But there's a whole lot more detail in this story, isn't there? To begin with, the narrator paints a vivid picture of the devastation of Israel under the hand of the Midianites. The land, their economy, the people, they're being ravaged. They're desperate, almost on the point of extinction. And we don't just get a summary statement of God raising up a man named Gideon to deliver Israel. We get a detailed account of his experience of the angel of the Lord meeting him and commissioning him, and Gideon struggled to believe that God could possibly be calling him to do this. And there's a whole lot more detail to come in the rest of chapters 6 to 8, describing the deliverance that God works through Gideon and what happens afterwards. And, and in this detail, we hear the overarching message. In a variety of ways, salvation is about God, not us. Now, how that message comes across, first of all, in chapter 6, is that salvation is about God rescuing us from sin to serve him. That's the purpose of it. It's not merely about God making our circumstances better. See, did you notice what God does, first of all, when the people cry out for help? He sends a prophet to remind the Israelites why they are suffering. The prophet reminds them of all that God has done for them, and then he concludes, I said to you, I am the Lord your God. Do not worship the gods of the Amorites in whose land you live, but you have not listened to me. Now, God's not just getting cranky with Israel and saying, that's it, you know, I've done it a couple of times, but I'm sick of it. No, he's pointing out that their sin and their unfaithfulness is the real problem that they need saving from. The, the terrible oppression of the Midianites is the obvious issue. They're keenly aware of their need for God's help to save them from these invaders. But as God points out, that's only the surface-level problem. The oppression they are experiencing, well, that's simply the consequences of their own sin problem. This is happening because you have not obeyed me. You've worshipped the gods of the nations that you're supposed to get rid of. You see, in effect, the Midianites are not their real enemy. God is. They have made God their enemy. They need to deal with that problem. Through their persistent sin and unfaithfulness, they keep turning God's hand against themselves. That's the real issue they need to deal with. We so easily focus on our circumstances rather than the real spiritual issues underneath, don't we? Sometimes salvation in Christ is even portrayed uh, to us as salvation from bad circumstances to a better life. But that's not the gospel. That's not what we need saving from. We need salvation from our sin, our guilt, 
We need to be rescued from stubbornly sinful hearts that alienate us from God. We need forgiveness and transformation, not simply relief from trouble in this life. And we need to take responsibility for the sin that we keep ignoring in our lives. See, uh, I know this experience well uh, of getting annoyed at kids who hurt themselves doing something stupid that we warned them not to do. I told you that, you know, you'd get hurt if you do that. But then we cry out to God to rescue us from the issues in our lives that we've caused by our own sinful, stubborn habits and attitudes. What we actually need is repentance, isn't it? Leading to salvation. And that's why when God does raise up a deliverer, the first thing he gets him to do is to attack the idols of his own family and village. So after the commissioning of Gideon that we read about, well, after that, reading on from verse 25, we hear this. That same night, the Lord said to him, Take the second bull from your father's herd, the one seven years old, tear down your father's altar to Baal, and cut down the Asherah pole beside it. Then build a proper kind of altar to the Lord your God on top of this height. Use the wood of the Asherah pole that you cut down. Offer the second bull as a burnt offering. See, if the sin of idolatry is the root problem, then redemption has to begin there, doesn't it? God will save them from the Midianites, but he wants to be clear, idolatry is the real issue. If you don't deal with that problem, then we'll just be back here all over again. And when the Apostle Paul is describing the conversion of the Thessalonians to Jesus, he explains, he explains it like this. They turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus who rescues us from the coming wrath. The saving faith in Jesus, it begins with turning away from idols to serve the living and true God, trusting in the salvation that he offers us in Jesus. Now, we might not have um, altars to Baal and Asherah poles in our backyard. Hopefully you don't. But there are plenty of idols that can capture our hearts, aren't there? Financial success, respect from peers, career, relationships, recreation. The redemption that God offers necessarily involves tearing down these altars, chopping them up, building an altar to the true God in their place, learning to worship and serve the true and living God with our money, with our career, in our relationships. And the reality is that this isn't easy or comfortable. In fact, it often involves confronting uh, idolatry and sin that we have participated in with others. That can be difficult. It can lead to awkward and difficult conversations, situations. Gideon resorted to doing his idol destruction uh, in the middle of the night because he was afraid of what others would do to him if they saw him. And, and, and rightly so, because in the morning when they realize what he's done, their first instinct is to kill him. Confronting idolatry is not easy, but it's essential. Now, how God responds to the cry of the Israelites, it reminds us that salvation is about him. It's ultimately about being redeemed from sin to worship God rightly. It's about being restored into a right relationship with God. It's not really about us and our circumstances. It's not about temporary fixes, making our lives easier or better here and now. It's about repenting of idolatry 
and turning to serve the true and living God. So we want to remember, first of all, what we are being saved from and what we are being saved for. But secondly, and, and I'd say this is probably the most obvious lesson from the Gideon story, the one that we focused on in the kids' talk, salvation is about God working powerfully through human beings, through human weakness, I should say. Salvation is about God saving us. See, God wants us to know and remember that he is the one who saves, not us. It's not by our strength or our moral worth or determination. It is all about him in the end. So we see it, first of all, in chapter 6, in the kind of person that Gideon is. Gideon is not picked because he's a strong, confident warrior. Gideon comes across as timid, uncertain, lacking faith. And, and God just works patiently with him to get him where he needs to be. Did you notice how Gideon responded when the angel told him to go in the strength you have and save Israel out of Midian's hand? Who am I? How can I save Israel? I'm a nobody. That's not a bad response. It's, it's humble rather than arrogant. That's good. But he's not exactly enthusiastic about what God's asking him to do. So God reassures him, I'll be with you. You will strike them down. He promises victory. But Gideon needs a sign to know it is really the Lord talking to him. He makes this elaborate feast as an offering for the mysterious visitor. And as we heard, Gideon gets the proof he needs. But Gideon still remains cautious and uncertain. Uh, as I mentioned, because he was afraid of his family and the men of the city, well, he tore down the altars at night rather than during the day. And he continues to struggle even as things seem to be going well. You see, after this first test of um, tearing down the idols, lots of things happened to boost his confidence. It should have boosted his confidence. Uh, his father sides with him um, rather than letting the, the men of the city kill him. Uh, then, the, you know, the men, they calm down. They seem content to support him. Uh, and then from verse 33, when the Midianites and the Amalekites and the other eastern peoples, they gather together for war against Israel, well, the Spirit of the Lord comes on Gideon and, and he manages to rally this big army uh, from a number of tribes to go into battle. He's been doing what God has asked him to do. He's got God's promises of victory. He's, he's got God's assurances that he's with him. Everything seems to be going well. But Gideon still struggles. He needs more reassurance. And, and from verse 36, we read, Gideon said to God, If you will save Israel by my hand, as you have promised, look, I'll place a, a wool fleece on the threshing floor. If there is dew only on the fleece and all the ground is dry, then I will know that you will save Israel by my hand, as you said. And that's what happened. Gideon rose early the next day, he squeezed the fleece, wrung out the dew, a bowl full of water. But that's not enough. Gideon's still not quite sure if this is a done deal. So verse 39, then Gideon said to God, do not be angry with me. He, he realizes he's pushing his luck. Let me just make one more request. Allow me one more test with the fleece. But this time, make the fleece dry and let the ground be covered in dew. And that night, God did so. Only the fleece was dry and all the ground was covered with dew. Now, by the end of chapter 6, Gideon, he doesn't emerge as an impressive man, does he? He's nervous, he's uncertain, he's in need of constant reassurance. He's weak, and he's aware of his weakness. And that's okay. God seems happy to work with his weakness. He's patient with all his tests. 
it gives him the reassurance that he needs. After all, God's preference is actually to work with weakness so that we will see all the more clearly where real power lies. And that's what we see very explicitly in chapter 7. So in chapter 7, uh, we read this. Early in, in the morning, Jeroboam, that is Gideon, uh, and all his men camped at the spring of Harod. The camp of Midian was north of them in the valley near the hill of Morah. The Lord said to Gideon, You have too many men. I cannot deliver Midian into their hands, or Israel would boast against me. My own strength has saved me. Now, this is a key verse for the chapter. It's what we need to keep remembering. Gideon has been concerned with how he could possibly defeat the Midianites. He's been nervous, asking for reassurance. But what is God concerned about? God's concerned there are too many men. Victory won't be miraculous enough. The Israelites will think their own power has saved them. Now, remember what God is saving them from and saving them for. It's to worship him. The purpose is to restore them to a right relationship with God, trusting him, fearing him, serving him alone. It's his grace, his purposes in salvation that motivates him to save in such a way that they have no option but to give thanks and honour and praise to God alone. That's what it's all about. So God gets to work reducing the size of the army. From verse 3. Now announce to the army, anyone who trembles with fear may turn back and leave Mount Gilead. So 22,000 men left, while 10,000 remained. Two-thirds of the army go. Men that Gideon has rallied to help him win. You can imagine him nervously watching them walk off, shoulders slumping. But God is just getting started, isn't he? That the Lord said to Gideon, there are still too many men. Take them down to the water and I will thin them out there for you. If I say this one shall go with you, he shall go. But if I say that one will not go with you, he shall not go. So Gideon took the men down to the water. There the Lord told him, separate those who lap the water with their tongues as a dog laps from those who kneel down to drink. 300 of them drank from cupped hands, lapping like dogs. All the rest got down onto their knees to drink. The Lord said to Gideon, with the 300 men that lapped, I will save you and give the Midianites into your hands. Let all the others go home. From 30,000 to 300. It's a profound reduction, isn't it? A ridiculous reduction. What is God doing? It's insane. But to Gideon's credit, he follows God's instructions. Verse 8, so Gideon sent the rest of the Israelites home, but kept the 300, who took over the provisions and the trumpets of the others. Now God is ready to save Israel, to reveal the power of his salvation and teach them to fear and trust in him alone. The camp of Midian lay below them in the valley, and verse 9, during that night the Lord said to Gideon, get up, go down against the camp, because I am going to give it into your hands. See, God's ready, but he knows Gideon is probably not. So once again, he works with Gideon's weakness to help him to trust. Verse 10, if you're afraid to attack, <laughs> if you're afraid, if that's possibly what's going on here, go down to the camp uh, with your servant Pura and listen to what they're saying. Afterward, you will be encouraged to attack the camp. So he and Pura, his servant, went down to the outposts of the camp. The Midianites and the Amalekites and all the other eastern peoples had settled in the valley, thick as locusts. 
Their camels could no more be counted than the sand on the seashore. Gideon arrived just as a man was telling a friend his dream. I had a dream, he was saying. A round loaf of barley bread came tumbling into the Midianite camp. It struck the tent with such force that the tent overturned and collapsed. Now, what would you think that dream is about? Well, his friend responded, This can be nothing other than the sword of Gideon, son of Joash the Israelite. God has given the Midianites and the whole camp into his hands. When Gideon heard the dream and its interpretation, he bowed down and worshipped. He returned to the camp of Israel and called out, Get up! The Lord has given the Midianite camp into your hands. Gideon doesn't need any more convincing. God has brought him to trust in his salvation, despite how crazy it looks. 300 men against so many soldiers, they can't be counted. It doesn't matter. God is obviously determined to deliver them. So Gideon decides to work with what he's got and assume God will do what he's promised. Verse 16, dividing the 300 men into three companies, he placed trumpets and empty jars in the hands of all of them with torches inside. Watch me, he told them, follow my lead. When I get to the edge of the camp, do exactly as I do. When I and all who are with me blow our trumpets, then from all around the camp, blow yours and shout for the Lord and for Gideon. Notice, Gideon isn't stupid, is he? He's not just marching up to the massive army and trying to defeat them with 300 men. Now he works with what he's got. It's a, it's a clever strategy. But at the same time, his plan exposes their weakness and their dependence on God. After all, they are just smashing pots and blowing trumpets and shouting. <laughs> if God doesn't come through for them, they're finished. But God does come through, doesn't he? Gideon and his men carry out their plan and then we read from verse 22, when the 300 trumpets sounded, the Lord caused the men throughout the camp to turn on each other with their swords. The Midianite army fights itself and then the remnant flees. And Gideon calls for the other tribes to come and help catch them and finish them off. God has done what he promised and he's made it clear that he has saved them, not Gideon or the size of the army. God is determined to work through human weakness to display his strength so that we might put our trust in the right place. And of course, there's no greater weakness, humanly speaking, than the cross of Christ, is there? And at the same time, there's no greater display of God's power. As God's chosen king hangs on the cross, humiliated by his enemies, God displays his almighty power, overthrowing the powers of sin and evil, nailing the claims of sin uh, over us onto the cross. In the cross, God is powerfully reconciling us to himself. And the preaching of the cross is, is weakness in the eyes of the world, isn't it? I mean, what can proclaiming the message of a crucified Messiah achieve? How can that deal with the weight of problems that we face in the world? And yet, as Paul proclaims, the gospel is the power of God for salvation. By the gospel, as people respond in faith, God justly punishes sin whilst justifying the sinner. And so, as Paul proclaims the gospel, he's careful not to rely on human wisdom or, or eloquent speech. Rather, he says, he comes in weakness and trembling, simply preaching the message of the cross. And why does he do this? So that your faith might not rest on human wisdom but on God's 
hour. I want our faith to be in the right place. In 1958, uh, I wasn't there at the time, but I've heard, the, the Evangelical Union, the Christian student group at Sydney University, ran a large campus mission, and they had invited the well-known minister from London, uh, John Stott. Now, everything seemed to be going well, but on the last day of the mission, before the final service, uh, Stott was suddenly afflicted by a bad cold that left him basically unable to speak. All he could do was just croak out the gospel in this monotone voice. But he and the mission team, uh, relying on God's declaration in chapter two, uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 12, that my grace is sufficient for you and my strength is made perfect in weakness, trusting in that message, they decided to press on and they prayed for God to display his power in Stott's weakness. When John Stott got up to preach, he was nervous, he felt awful, and God did not miraculously enable him to speak clearly and powerfully. He, he could just croak out his message very painfully. Uh, but when he got to the end and he invited people to respond to the gospel, a huge number of people came forwards to give their life to Christ, and it was something that he never forgot. And, and for years afterwards, he, he reported, whenever he would visit Australia, he, someone would invariably come up to him and say, you remember that final meeting in the Great Hall at Sydney University when you lost your voice? Well, I was converted that night. Years afterwards, every time he came to Australia, someone would tell him that. Salvation is about God. It's about his power displayed in our weakness, especially in our weakness, so that we might recognize his power and trust in it. We don't want to forget that. We don't want to make it about ourselves or rely on our own schemes, our own righteousness, our own cleverness or systems or technology. It's about God. It's about what he has done for us in Christ. It's not about us. And yet, we make it all about us. That's what makes the end of the Gideon story so sad. After all that God has done, after the measures he has taken to protect the Israelites from making the mistake of focusing on themselves, well, they find a whole bunch of ways to do just that. The sad truth is that we human beings seem to have this relentless ability to make salvation about ourselves. Now, you have to read chapter 8 for yourselves uh, later uh, today or sometime this week, but I just want to mention a few of the key points. First of all, uh, in verses 1 to 3, the men of Ephraim, they get upset with Gideon for not inviting them earlier to come and fight. They resent the fact that they didn't get the opportunity to fully display their power and might. And Gideon manages to, to massage their egos and, and they back down, but I don't think they get the real point. They seem stuck in seeing God's redemptive work as a context to, to shine, to get attention for themselves, to, to show how impressive they are, to do their bit. And then in verses 4 to 9, we get the opposite problem. Gideon and his small army are pursuing the Midianite kings who've escaped the battle with the remnant of the army, and they need refreshment on the way. Uh, and two Israelite towns, Succoth and Penuel, well, they're reluctant to get involved because they're primarily focused on what they think will be best for them. So they're seeing things from a human strategic point of view, weighing up the odds, and they don't want to run the risk of helping Gideon's army only to see them lose and then get punished by the Midianites even worse afterwards. That's understandable. But it's making the mistake of thinking that it's all about us. What's going to be best 
for us? What, what, what will it achieve for us? Uh, they're not trusting in the power of God who overthrows an army of 100,000 with 300 men. They're not serving the Lord, come what may. And then we see Gideon responding really savagely to these towns. And, and, and what we find in the end is that Gideon has actually been motivated by more than just obedience to God. He's actually on a mission to avenge the death of his brothers, whatever the cost. He swears vengeance on these towns. He'll whip their flesh with thorns and tear down their towers. And, and after he catches up with the Midianites and he finishes them off, well, he comes back and he does just that. With grim determination, he whips and he slaughters his fellow Israelites for not helping him. And then he turns to interrogate the Midianite kings that he captured. Uh, and, and we read in verse 18, he asked Zeba and Zalmunna, what kind of men did you kill at Tabor? Men like you, they answered, each one with the bearing of a prince. Gideon replied, those were my brothers, the sons of my own mother. As surely as the Lord lives, if you'd spared their lives, I would not kill you. Now, it's not bad that Gideon was determined to pursue the kings and finish them off. But the Gideon we see emerging in chapter 8 is slightly disturbing. He pushes his men beyond exhaustion. He whips and he slaughters his fellow Israelites. He's no longer seeking guidance or waiting on God. And here at the end we find out why. He's on a personal mission to avenge the death of his brothers. All along, whilst acting as a servant of the Lord, he's been fantasizing about slaying the men who hurt his family. His own agenda has been there driving him, emerging and, and controlling him as he gains confidence from what God enables him to do. That's subtle, but it's a powerful reminder of our capacity to make everything about ourselves, even the work that God calls us to do for him, in his power, for his glory. We have this disturbing ability to make any situation a context for pursuing our own agenda. And then finally, at the end of the story, we see Israel somehow tragically miss the whole point of what God has done for them. In verse 22, after all that God has done, what do they say? The Israelites said to Gideon, rule over us, you and your son and your grandson, because you have saved us from the hand of Midian. You saved us. Your hand delivered us. You should rule over us. You're so great, Gideon. They want to set up a kingship beginning with Gideon. It was God. God reduced Gideon's army to ridiculously small levels to make it impossible to think that it was by human strength that they had won the battle. But Israel's done the impossible. They've managed to give Gideon the credit and fail to acknowledge God's goodness to them. Now, thankfully, Gideon resists their request. He says, no, no, the Lord will rule over you. However, Immediately, he undermines this by making this new ephod out of the, the plunder, uh, like what the priests used to consult God's will. And, and he placed this new extra ephod in his own hometown, and all Israel ends up worshipping it like a god. It's a, it's a tragic and ironic ending to the story of God redeeming Israel through Gideon. You see, from the outset... The whole point was to redeem Israel from their idolatry so they might serve God faithfully and trust in him. And despite all that God did, patiently and powerfully working through the weakness of Gideon and Israel, they've ended up back where they started, trusting in themselves and worshipping an idol. The story of Gideon reminds us 
that God is at the centre of our salvation. He's the one it's all about. And it also powerfully warns us, doesn't it? It warns us of our tendency to resist this truth, to make salvation all about ourselves again and again. So ultimately, I think it points to our need for a greater saviour than Gideon could ever be, for a saviour who will rescue us, not just from marauding Midianites, but from unfaithful and fickle hearts. That's the saviour that we need. Well, as the Apostle Paul says, thanks be to God who delivers us through Christ Jesus our Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you today for your salvation your gracious and powerful salvation, and we acknowledge that we don't bring anything to it. It happens in the context of weakness. And we ask that you would help us to continue to trust in you and you alone. And we pray, uh, especially for Matt and Shreji, as they are baptised today, that, that they will... Uh, be encouraged to trust in you alone for their salvation and that we as a church community might encourage and strengthen them uh, in that walk, that we might encourage and strengthen each other to continue trusting and serving you alone. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Mm -hmm.